Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for bringing us safely to a brand new week. And we pray on this chilly November morning that you would keep warm those who have no place to live, that you would fill our hearts with gratitude for the many blessings we enjoy, including the comfort of shelter and technology to gather during this time. And we pray that we learn something new as we study your word together in community. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Paul in Athens. While Paul was waiting in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems like a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all the nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed, God is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have even said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, so a few things. One is that Paul is beginning this chapter waiting for other believers, other members of the church in Athens. And as he pays attention to the city, he finds himself deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. These are pagan idols, um, images of the gods that are worshipped. And Paul, um, you know, he feels deeply, and I think that's important just to note um, this, this idea of him being deeply distressed. Um, uh, I, I don't have the, the Greek uh, in front of me, and Philip might be able to weigh in, on that in a bit, but uh, to me, this is a, a sense of his heart being moved, that he feels grief 
Uh, and so his heart is connected to the gospel in a way that he feels a deep grief when he sees people um, not worshiping the God he proclaims. And so he is arguing in the synagogue with the Jews, but quickly what we find, because this is Athens, and as we're told, um, the Athenians would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. So this is a place where philosophy thrives, where the latest idea thrives, and everyone wants to know what the latest teaching is. And some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers uh, seem to pay attention to what Paul is saying. Uh, and so Paul shifts from preaching and arguing with the Jews from the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah to speaking to Gentiles, to pagans. And the nature of Paul's ministry um, is starting to shift where his primary audience is to be uh, an apostle to the Gentiles, as he will say in his own epistles. Now, he starts talking with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers I'm not an expert on these two branches of ancient philosophy, but essentially, you know, if you had to boil it down to a tweet, Epicurean philosophy said that there is no higher good than pleasure, you know, than, than the bodily senses being pleased, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, basically get your fill now of worldly uh, pleasure. Um, that's the highest good we can seek. And Stoics, um, in a sense, were a little bit of the opposite. Stoics often get a bad rap for people who are really emotionally hardened. But <laughs> I think that like the early Stoics were probably not that different from, you know, maybe practitioners of Zen or something like that. People who just were, they said the present moment is all we have. There's no need to resist it. There's no need to get lost in future hope. Uh, or past guilt, uh, and the Stoics were people who really wanted to train their body and their emotions to live, um, uh, to not be swept away by the things that really entice the Epicureans. But nevertheless, uh, neither one of them seems to think that Paul knows what he's talking about. Um, they call him a babbler, but they're also interested in what he has to say, and they invite him to the Areopagus, which was a big rock where imp important trials and debates would happen in antiquity. And to get a hearing at the Areopagus is to basically, you know, uh, he got invited into the pagan pulpit, so to speak. And so whenever he gets there, it's interesting to hear what Paul says, because notice what Paul can't do any longer is argue from the scriptures. He is now speaking to people. He, he can't talk about how God's covenant with Abraham is being fulfilled through Jesus and the resurrection. He, he can't assume that. He can't assume that people know the scriptures or that they care. And so notice how his argument is going to change from what he has been saying and from what Luke has been saying through him and Peter now that his audience is changing. So he starts by saying, you know, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. Um, and I don't know how you interpret this, but I interpret it as a bid for connection, that, that Paul is not being sarcastic, that he's not being mean, that he is actually finding something within the people of Athens that he can praise, that he wants to affirm this religious impulse inside of them, even if uh, Paul thinks that it is misguided. He says that I went through and I looked carefully at the objects of your worship. And so you know, many people have taken this passage as a template for sharing 
the gospel with others, you know, in order to proclaim the hope that's in us, sometimes we have to look carefully at what occupies the lives of the people to whom we're sent. And so Paul is very observant, and he finds the altar that says, to an unknown God. And Paul really uses this as his opening. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this is what I'm proclaiming to you, that the God who made the world and everything in it, um, he has certain characteristics. He has a name. Uh, he doesn't live in a shrine made by human hands. And here's the big one. This God isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything. This is an important point, I think, and maybe something that will elicit some conversation amongst the group in a bit. But it was the pagan gods that demanded service. And human beings served the pagan gods in fear, hoping to appease them either to earn their favor or to avoid their displeasure. And a big difference between the God that Paul is proclaiming and the unknown gods that the Athenians are worshiping, or worse, the pagan gods, is that Paul really wants to make clear this God does not need our service. And I think that's important because we often talk about serving God. That's part of our language in Christianity. And I don't encourage us to stop using that language, but I think it's important to name what we mean. Whenever we talk about serving God, what we're really talking about is not serving God the way that pagans would serve their gods, but really an overflow of the love we have received that we want to participate in and share as people made in the image of this very generous God. But God doesn't need our worship. You know, we sometimes hear people say, you know, God has no hands but yours, no feet but yours. If you don't get out there and do it, then God's whole project is going to fail. And I get why people say stuff like that. And it's a half truth, but it's not the full truth. The full truth is that God actually doesn't need anything we have to offer and that our whole existence is a gift and that the service we offer God is a response to divine love. And, and Paul is really honing in on this point. Um, so notice here he says, from one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. These people don't know the Old Testament, so he doesn't even mention Abraham. You know, in the past, Paul is very clear he assumes everyone knows this story starts with Abraham and a covenant, but given that they don't know the, the backstory, you know, Paul's not going to retell the whole thing. He's taking a different approach as a missionary. He is going to creation, you know, uh, the Lord who made heaven and earth. Um, he is going to their religious impulse to worship. And so his whole message is a little bit different, even though it's still about Jesus and the resurrection as we hear in the first paragraph, Paul's way of getting there is very different because he is speaking to people who have no background um, in the Old Testament. And, um, and this is an important shift in the, the book of Acts as well. Um, and then I think this is really Paul at his finest. Um, he says, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. And so, you know, we talk about in him we live and move and have our being. Um, Paul is quoting pagan poets, and he basically says, you got that part right. Um, you know, you're not totally in the dark. There is something about God that you know to be true. Your poets, you know, got close. And so let me let me give you the full story here. Let me explain 
um, the truth of God a little bit more accurately to you. Um, and, and so I, I think that Paul is being very generous and looking for places in their tradition where he can find some commonality so that he can proclaim um, the gospel to them. Um, but then, you know, just when we think Paul is getting very uh, ecumenical and, uh, you know, as if he's like a Unitarian or something, he then says, while God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and he has given us assurance of this by raising him from the dead. And so, you know, Paul does empathize deeply in my reading with the Athenians. He affirms their religious impulse. He quotes the pagan poets. He's generous in proclaiming the gospel. He doesn't even bother rehashing the entire Old Testament because he knows they don't know it. But he does give them what he concerns to be the essentials, which we're told is the last judgment, the resurrection, and calling people to believe. So I'm going to go ahead and pause there and see what you think of this and what you picked up in hearing it read. I'm not going to take up a lot of our time telling a personal story, but... There's only four of us, so... <laughs> no, but I, I don't need to be so verbose. When I lived in Greece, I was there uh, as a Fulbright Scholar, which was part of the State Department. So I was, you know, part of the carrot side of things. But they would put me up when I had to go to Athens at the President's Hotel, which is a place where every military person from around the world was put up. And there's a lot of secret military installations all over Greece and on the islands. And I was just struck by remembering how I would go to breakfast in that hotel. And here would be this multitude of people who all spoke different languages and wore different uniforms. And I think I was the only woman in the room. But I'm sure that's how Paul must have felt, walking into a place that was just full of all of these different people and ideas. And, you know, you got to keep your act together and walk through that breakfast room and say, okay, well, I'm here, but I'm from the State Department. <laughs> you know, so Athens is a place of great contrast for so many centuries. And I think in the end, they, they always, always look to Alexandria to Egypt first, before they would have looked to, you know, uh, Asia or, or the Middle East, what we would call the Middle East. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Thank you. Any, anything, Martha, I'm just curious about uh, Paul's presence in Athens that you found to be um, interesting or questionable or exciting or? Well, I think I was trying to think, where is this rock that he would have stood on? It, it, there's a, a old, much old, the old Athens where there are a lot of Roman ruins and things. I'm pretty sure that's where it would have happened. It's way down below the Acropolis. I mean, you're nowhere near the center of Greek religious ideas. But I think Paul, I think, here's Paul offering a sense of, of hope and light and resurrection, whereas the, 
the deities, the constant devotion, the, you know, circumscribed life of the average, well, the Athenians, you can't say the average people, countryside people, but to me, that's what's been the striking difference of what, what Paul is bringing to us. Here is life. We don't have to keep repeating things. We don't, we're not stuck in these seasonalities of worship. We're not bound to keep history repeating itself. It's a phrase that I often had to fight with students to say, you're ignoring your capacity as a human to believe in change, to believe that you are created as a unique person. Go do something different. Stop telling me that, you know, you're, you're a fatalist. You're bound, we're bound to fail. Mm-hmm. Paul's saying, no, you guys, you got it pretty much right. I'm, I'm into the ecumenical part of it. But here's the missing link. You know, I think he's playing, he's being a really good politician. I mean, he and Luke have got this thing nailed. <laughs> so, okay, that's my, that's my piece. I'm going to put myself on mute now. <laughs> oh, don't. <laughs> certainly, certainly, you know, he does, he does keep him engaged, right? I mean, he doesn't come in and say everything y'all are doing is wrong. I mean, he, even though he, he does proclaim the gospel, he is out to proclaim and ask them to believe it and to, you know, ultimately knowing Paul, he would want them to be baptized and to be part of the church and all of that. Uh, at least he does start by being, um, by, by meeting them in some sense where they are and by being curious about their lives and about what they're worshiping. And if nothing else, trying to find some good he can build off of. At least I think that's, that's my reading. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think your reading is right. Um, I, I think I would add one thing to it. It starts off very positively. I see you've got all this, got all this going for you. Uh, but you, you worship a God that's unknown. Mm-hmm. I know this God. He's made himself known. And I'm going to tell you this. And I think that the other side of this is these other temples are human beings making up God. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I've, but to quote Paul, I, I've seen the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. I, I don't have to make God up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm here to tell you about it. And he's made, this is the way he's right, you know, he's overcome death, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I've always found this an extremely, uh, powerful passage because I think it was Calvin who said, you know, we're idol makers. We just manufacture them forever and ever and ever. And idols are always in our own image. Uh, Was it the whole Greek saying that if God was a horse, no, if we were horses, God would look like a horse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, you, You I think I think we 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 don't miss at least I miss the majesty of the fact that God has made Himself known. I don't have to make that up. Mm-hmm. And Philip, I was just ready to say, "Wow, I'm so glad you used this word other," because what I hear in this is, you know, you Greeks, you've made all these others and unwilling to recognize that God is within you. 
And when you look into the face of another person, you should, I believe, imagine that this is Christ standing before you. Of course, then in the end here, you don't like that idea. <laughs> you're, you're speaking of humans, you know, needing to see God in other humans or make God as other humans. I, I, I don't know about that. That's a, that's a, a big dilemma for me, maybe a conundrum that's unsolvable. At what point do we see God in others, God in ourselves, or God separate? I, I'm, I'm willing to step out on that limb and ask for help on that. <laughs> Donna has the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear from her. <laughs> yes, I do. No. <laughs> Um, no, I, I know exactly the question that, that you're that you're posing there, and, and I think it I I hear it most in Paul's words, and Christ in me, Christ in everything, and then you know. So I I don't know. That's um, um one I guess one of the things of, that you just have to not know not know a concrete answer to. I also had a question. Um, I uh, I only have a rudimentary, you know, education on Greek and Roman gods and idols. But is this is this is this idol to the unknown god? Is that was that just a okay everything else or was that I don't I just don't remember. And it, it it's just a it's just it, I don't think it's that important to the story, whether it was a specific thing or just something that he saw that said, oh, and in case we forgot, this is to the God of everything else, so. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, my, my um, so, so my sense, uh, Donna, you know, he, he said that he went and looked carefully at all the objects of their worship, and I found an altar mm -hmm. with the description. So, I mean, my my kind of reading of Athens in this book is that like the religious landscape is like, you know, it's like the golden corral. You've got all kinds of different stuff that people are mm -hmm. eating on the buffet and, and different gods and different, you know, in a few chapters, uh, Paul's going to get into trouble because some worshipers of the god uh, Artemis are going to be very upset with him because his preaching is ruining the, the idol making business. And so... Um, mm -hmm. so my sense, Donna, is that it really is a, a, a pluralistic, I mean, it's, it's not like one, two, three different faiths, that there's like a big explosion of different gods mm -hmm. um, that are being honored and worshipped and sought after. And that's my, that's my sense of ancient Athens. Mm -hmm. in the yeah. But, you know, to go back, oh, go ahead. It, it, I can. I, I guess I hadn't really imagined it until now. But it must have been quite an industry with all of the uh, Greek and Roman gods and paying homage and buying the idols and yeah. and just like uh, I hate to say it, but like Christmas celebrations can be now with it's it's kind of a <laughs> you know a, a, a whole industry around around the the. Absolutely. And you're gonna see you're gonna see that a lot of people get upset with Paul because his preaching later on, I don't know what opportunity we're gonna get to study the passages because our time's gonna run short. But Paul, you know, he really whenever he is proclaiming, you know, this is the one God that I proclaim, like put it into these idols, that also means the idol business. 
And mm-hmm. so if you're just, you know, average God trying to feed your family by making statues to the, you know, goddess Aphrodite mm-hmm. and you're pulling, that's how you make your money. Well, the gospel Paul is preaching is not going to be very good for your business. And you might kind of get your friends together to get him kicked out of town and things like that would happen. You know, it seems like on a routine basis uh, from the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. But I want to go back. It is an interesting question. And, and before I kind of speak to it, I want to make sure I understand the tension, Martha, that I think I hear you articulating between, um, you know, the um, the end of the passage of um, he commands everyone to repent because he has fixed a day of judgment, you know, that, that kind of very clear, clear um, proclamation of the Christian gospel coupled with for lack of a better word, more of a, um, uh, uh, not to put these against each other, but a more spiritual of like finding God in our own heart, finding God in our relationships, kind of, you know, St. Patrick's breastplate, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ between us. I mean, is that kind of the tension I'm hearing? Well, I, I think that would be part of it. I think I think the what I'm grappling with is the idea of, of the true existence of of the material Christ and his life and and our lives and at what point and maybe this is more about the Holy Spirit but at what point are we mere mortals and and at what point do we celebrate christ in all of us so it's kind of a yeah so that's the tension i can't even really articulate i guess i'm afraid to say i think that god exists in us therefore are we as holy as christ Therefore, are are our lives as having the same capacity, the generosity to to go that step, you know? And I think when you were saying, well, there's always the, you know, our hands, our feet, all of that, that 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 that's also speaking to that tension. And I just don't know that I have enough evidence that I can say, okay, I want to go this way or I want to go that way with this, yes. you know, and I, and, and I just don't know where that exists. And if I'm, if it means that I'm outside the, the general Christian idea of, of how God's love inhabits us, or when we speak to God's love or like staying in the flow of all of that, we're still human, but we, we're infused with God's joy, God's spirit. Yeah. I was also thinking too, and we have, you know, and I, I agree with Donna, you know, that all the selling of idols and all of this stuff, that's, that was a real, you know, economic viability for the whole lower class of Athens. The upper class would have been sitting around a theater debating things like justice. Uh, individual right, you know, all the things we attribute to the morality, the the great philosophical ideas coming from Greece that we live with, that our landscape is imprinted with. 
-hmm. And our buildings are etched. You know, I mean, there's a reality, a very physicality to all of this that we still with what these Greeks were debating. And I think one of the, the real questions then is like, well, what freedom do they have? What freedom did all of those shopkeepers and idol makers have? And Paul shows up and says, oh, you don't have to do any of this. You're totally free. And when Jesus speaks of being free, we want to say, well, he's free of this material stuff, and I'm arguing that. But, he's, but this idea of being even more free, being as free as, as, as an Athenian citizen to go and debate justice and to show justice and to be empowered, I, you know, I think that was underlying some of the arguments going on. And who came to hear Paul? It was both the thinkers and the common people. And who walks away with saying, okay, we're going to buy this? It was the common people who said that. Mm. Okay. No, that's good. That's really good. Just a few thoughts. And then we can either continue this thread or go to a different uh, um, passage. One is, you know, certainly, I, I don't really, I'm not a, in touch enough. You know, and, and looking at Paul's letters, certainly his church was filled with a lot of socioeconomic diversity. We see in First Corinthians that, you know, he has to get on the rich people because they keep getting drunk and leaving the poor people out at the Eucharist. I mean, he, you know, so, so part of the, the things that he's writing about in First Corinthians are the tensions that are naturally arising out of such um, class and uh, diversity within the church. And so we know that his message had a following with all, and certainly Jesus, uh, you know, the peasants, the prostitutes, I mean, they, they loved Jesus, whereas often the elites had a hard time. But, you know, to go back uh, just to a question, and, and I offer this not so much to be kind of the definitive answer, but the way I think about it of, um, you know, do we treat people as mere mortals or, you know, uh, or is there a holiness in them that is akin to, to Jesus himself? And I think the way that, um, that uh, I tend to think about that is uh, that it would, you know, that I, I would never, if someone, we, we've had these moments in the book of Acts where people fall down to try to worship Peter and they try to, they, they fall down to worship Paul that says, no, get up. <laughs> you know, I'm just a mere mortal. <laughs> Stop doing this, right? Uh, and in a similar way, if, if we were to meet in person and, and I were to fall down and, and worship you, after a while, you'd probably tell me to get up because there'd, there'd be this internal mechanism that kicked in that says, this is kind of blasphemous. You need to stop doing this, right? Uh, and so, uh, so for me, kind of the, the uniqueness of Christ is always going to be very important. But oddly enough, that uniqueness leads to a profound, the more we take it in, in my experience, a profound reverence and dignity with how we relate to other people. Um, you know, as Jesus said in the reading last week, truly I tell you what you did to the least of my brothers and sisters, you did also to me. And so even within that verse is embedded this, this tension, whereas I'm the most important, and yet, what you did to the least of these brothers and sisters, you did it to me too, you know? And so somehow I think it's a good tension. I can't speak to all of it here, but that there is a way I think of putting our feet in both lanes without sacrificing 
you know, um, what the church has traditionally considered orthodoxy. But it's a, it's a really great question you ask, and I think I know where you're coming from. Good. Well, I was, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I think she's coming from a very human place that we all occupy. <laughs> yeah. But I, I have found some guidance with Paul in another place, and I just, because it seems to me he, he states the issue very clearly here. In Ephesians, he's talking to the Gentiles, right? The people who worship in Athens and all that. And he says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember, that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants, having no hope and without God in the world. And so he, at this point at least, Paul drives, drives, makes a pretty clear distinction between being in Christ and the great news is, but now he's come and you are now called into that. So the question is, how does one enter into that thing which God has done? And, and Sarah said something about the Holy Spirit. I think that's the right answer. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, anyway. Thanks. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, that's uh, all right. Excuse me. That's all right. You're helping me understand more about the book of Ephesians, which is one of my favorite letters, epistles. So I have to go back and reread that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's this interesting. Um, uh, Martha, you referenced how um, people would sit around talking about justice and really about how much of Greek culture is still alive and present in our culture. And um, here, Paul uh, quotes the pagan prophets in order to proclaim the gospel. He says, okay, so your, your pagan poets, um, 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 your, your pagan poets have, have, have said this, uh, in him we live and move and have our being, and, and Paul uses the pagan poetry to kind of build on that to proclaim the gospel. But it makes me think of, I think it was Tertullian or, or an early uh, church father who asked the question, um, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem, was his question. It was Tertullian. Yeah, and his question, and, and he said it negatively, his answer was nothing that the two shouldn't be joined together, that, you know, all this stuff coming out of philosophy and, and Athens and Greece and all that, you know, just throw it all away. Christianity doesn't need it. Well, that's not what happened, right? Because St. Augustine came along and he discovered um, the work of Plotinus and some other Platonists really rooted in Greek culture and kind of the orthodoxy that emerged. I mean, no one can argue with it, Although it's very, I mean, it's Christian orthodoxy uh, and rooted in scripture of the Old Testament, uh, it, it's, it very much borrows and takes seriously uh, some philosophical concepts of Greek philosophy. Uh, and that's found its way in various ways into our tradition and, and into kind of an orthodox understanding of Christianity. And um, and that's just interesting. You know, the question, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? What does Christianity have to do with the secular, right, is a way we could reframe that today. It's still a very interesting question. I don't have an answer to it, but I found that a lot of people have different comfort levels when it comes to 
finding what is good or holy or true uh, in the culture outside of their faith. Um, and that some of us are like, no, never mix the two at all. And some of us are really willing to beg, borrow, and steal all that we can uh, if we think that it's true. And so I just kind of throw that out there, and I'm curious what you think about that. Um, well, I think it was very interesting that so much of our American world, geography, landscape, culture, society is based on those Greek ideas way more than it is on anything in the Jewish tradition or the Old Testament. I mean, what does Athens and Jerusalem have to do with each other? I mean, my reading of the history and geography is that we are much more tied to ideas that did come from Athens, mm -hmm. whereas you would have thought maybe we would have seen ourselves as the legacy of the Old Testament. But we, you know, Jerusalem, I used to have to tell my students, look, when you're studying Eastern Mediterranean, imagine that you are in the center of the universe in Jerusalem, because that's where it was all at. You know, and that's really difficult for people in our Western society to say, oh, I mean, it's not Washington, D.C. that looks like Athens. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, so I, I'm just offering that as a comment, you know, I mean, we well, it's more that than much a, about. It's more than a comment. It's a very important point. because, <laughs> Well, it seems to me, actually, that you can track the history of early Christianity all the way up to the Middle Ages as an attempt to come to reconcile being in Abraham and that line and, and Greek culture. Yeah. So if you read Augustine, it's Plato he's talking to all the time. If you read Thomas Aquinas, it's Aristotle he's talking about all the time. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and the, the result of that dialogue on the one hand was countless heresies, and on the other hand, a much more profound understanding of what the Christian faith is. And so who are the great doctors of the church? Well, it's Augustine and Thomas. I mean, you can't beat that company. Mm -hmm. But where would they have been without that attempt to say, this is the worldview that's around us. This is the way in which Christianity, which is an Hebraic religion, mm -hmm. um, gets melded with that, but in such a way as it doesn't lose its integrity. And it is a huge thing. And I think we have to throw in there that I know there's a lot of controversy around that guy, but Thomas Jefferson had some ideas about that. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Well, he did, but he's He's one in a long line, let me just say that. Yeah, I know. It's just our American version of it. Yeah. But yeah. deism goes way back. Yeah. So this text, this text is one, you know, if, if you're ever trying to wrestle, I think. I mean, I think that a conversation about this text brings up tensions to live in and to solve with the heart over time. You know, you raised one, Martha. I mean, the just the tension of, I mean, the the deep influence of Hellenistic Greek culture on the West and on Christianity, um, and and I, I you know, Philip kind of said, you know, it led to a lot of heresies and it led to a finer refinement of orthodoxy. And I, I think that's accurate. That 
it's not that you just kind of threw the Old Testament and Plato and Aristotle in a blender and Christianity came out. That's not actually how it is. It really starts, you know, with, with Paul and the other apostles proclaiming Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And then they had first their own, like their own question of, well, how does this relate to the Hebrew scriptures? You know, how, how, I mean, this is the fulfillment of those scriptures. This is the fulfillment of God calling Abraham. But, the, you know, we still have to make the case there of how these two things tie. Mm-hmm. And even though I think that it's very intuitive, you know, once you really go deep into the Old Testament and the New Testament, how connected they are, first time you read it, it, it doesn't intuitively connect all the time. That's why people say things like, oh, I'm more of a New Testament person than an Old Testament person. Oh, God, and, oh, they say things like that <laughs> without, going deep, without going deep into both, it can be very difficult to see the nuanced way that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, right? So mm-hmm. the church fathers had a lot of work to do just ha- helping the gospel be clearly articulated as, the fulfillment of the Hebrew uh, scriptures, the Old Testament. But then on top of that, you know, Greek philosophy had a lot to contribute to the world. And in God's providence, the gospel came into being at the height of all that. And so, you know, to this day, we're kind of like living with some of the wrestling of the different influences of our faith and, and always asking the question, what is essential? What is important? what is not essential, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd just like to say, I think that this, the, 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 the question which Martha raises, at least to my mind, it's not just then the early church and the Middle Ages wrestling with Plato and Aristotle, but I think we have our own sort of, what I will call struggle with, with the environing culture. And you can see it today. Are, do we look to Kant, namely, we are free, rational human beings. That's the source of our dignity. That's our big word. Or do we refer to Durkheim? We are social beings. We are colored by the social world. And we can't exist apart from being social beings. Now, communitarians and contractarians. Here we are. Never stops. It never stops. It doesn't. Donna, you're about to say something. Um, yes, as as uh, with it, it's um, it's funny. This morning's um, lesson from Richard Rohr was was about the year 313 when Christianity, you know, became the official uh, Roman religion, and I think that that probably was such a. a, a breaking point for the the mysticism of the Middle East and the and the actual um, heritage that brought us Christianity was was replaced by Greek and Roman thought and and you know my husband grew up in the Catholic Church and he will tell you the church started in Rome and you go okay well <laughs> that's odd but uh, you know it's it's part of kind of, I think part of the tradition that that we've it kind of accepted as Western American Christians. Um, so, and the, the Greek and Roman is so much part of every 
everything that we do, we just we just realize that to be true instead of one part of truth, I think. So call Donna. <laughs> I I think that there's all for me, there's also this sense of what what has been going on. I mean, a lot of anti-Semitic thinking. You know, I mean, it's kind of like a counterbalance, kind of a rejection in a way by those who are unwilling to read the Old Testament. I mean, there is something else going on there, the kind of the negative or the the other piece to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, this is really uh, a very uh, interesting, interesting conversation. And... I want to turn to that verse where he says, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. And then he kind of goes from extremely religious into idolatry. And um, the, I don't know what the Greek word is for religion. Philip might be able to tell us in a bit. The Latin is legare, which means to, to rebind or yeah. And so for me, I, our religion is more of a functional thing than a societal thing that our religion is whatever we bind or connect our heart to in order to feel uh, significant or to remove that sense of lack that's at the center of the human experience. And so um, idolatry in today's world isn't limited. You know, my guess is that none of you have ever been tempted to worship the goddess uh, Aphrodite, but that you probably have been tempted to uh, accumulate more money than you need or to tell a lie to get people to perceive you in a certain way or um that you've you know i mean so there's different things that we connect our heart to in today's world um that one could argue that if we do it too repetitively it can be its own form of idolatry and i'm wondering you know, what you think of that and whether or not idolatry is a concept that is alive for you or if you feel like it's a dead concept and only has to do with worshiping stone statues. <laughs> None of us like to think of ourselves as idol worshipers, <laughs> but I, I think that we're invited to try that on to hear Paul, you know, preach to us today. No. Well, but if, if having, if, uh, you know, I, I don't have any things that I, that I call idols in my home, but have there been things in the past that if I thought I gave this special significance, I might get something in return and then, you know, gave, gave the glory of that back to the university, the job, the person who let me do this, all of those things. Yeah. Probably. So. <laughs> yeah. I'm in, I'm sitting in the prune next to you, Donna. <laughs> On our knees, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, John, you, the, the way that you use that word religion is the first time in my whole life that I ever realized that that is, that is a R-E, to recreate, to be reborn, to so religion, what is religare, reconnect, rebind? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that it's a process. You know, we we all still think of religion as being this noun, but it implies that it's a process. It's a verb. It's action. Mm -hmm. 
And that perhaps it could involve some choice of what do you choose to bind your heart to today and how will you do that? Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm just leaving church and a lot of people, whether worshiping with us in person or at home, they made a conscious choice to bind their heart to the extent that they could to God through the sacraments, through the liturgy. Um, you know, but I can also go home and bind my heart to the Dallas Cowboys and get emotionally <laughs> upset whenever they lose and take it out of my family. And in that moment, my <laughs> shifted, you know. What the South Cell about, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I can't, rem- I'm sorry I'm embarrassed. I can't remember the infinitive form of these things, but I think the idea that religion, in quotes, in, in Greek is something you do. Uh, one is proskuneo, something along those lines, which you you basically worship, you fall down before. And the other is liturgia, you, you do uh, public work at private expense. You, this is what you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not sure, I'll have to look that up. <laughs> you all may be fighting with, you know, your favorite team tailgate partying but up here in the northwest it's all about being outside it's all about nature worship and Mm -hmm. they it's very well documented that people up here sunday mornings that's for going outside and it's not going to church it's the least church church part of the country Mm -hmm. well so i think though this is a good point i so i love i love I, i think idolatry uh, is an important concept to keep alive. Uh, I don't think it's negative. I think it's actually very pr- practical. Now, I don't. When I say I don't think it's negative, I, I I don't think like we should do it. I'm just saying that it's. It, I think it describes the human condition. Earlier, um, Philip quoted John Calvin. The quote is that our heart is a factory for idols, mm-hmm. and so so Calvin. His idea of the human heart was that it's always producing images of things that will make it happy. If I just get the girl, if I just get the job, if I just get your respect, if my team just wins, if you will just do the dishes instead of me. I mean, like the heart is always doing the, if only X would happen, I would be happy. As opposed to my whole existence is a gift and I will receive whatever comes from the Lord's hand with humility and gratitude, right? And um, so whenever I think of, of this concept of uh, idolatry, uh, I like it as just a very normal human process. Because for me, uh, you know, contrary to what some hardcore preachers might have told you at some point, sin is not like this thing that only a couple people do who are really bad. And it's not limited to one, two, three, four, five behaviors that God doesn't like. Sin is actually what happens not when we love a bad thing, but when we love a good thing way too much and maybe even become addicted to it and forget about God in the process. And so like what I tell people, you know, and I mean this is that it's literally impossible to love anything too much. You can't love your kids too much. You can't love your job too much. You can't love your car too much. You can't love your money too much. You can't love the Texas Longhorns too much. You can't love (laughs) too much. You can only love these things too much in proportion 
to your love for God, because whenever your love for God is the highest of your loves, it has a way of helping you order these other things in your life. And so that's why I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, trying to recover idolatry as theological language for modern times, because it might actually lead to a more generous understanding of sin uh, and a more like normalized understanding of how we humans operate. I love that, and, and I'm, it reminds me that when I did live in Greece, I, I was fortunate to participate in some Orthodox Easter, the whole thing, and, and I came out of that experience reading the Bible, the New Testament anyway, in a much different way, a different phrasing, different understanding what the words that were there instead of what I'd been, you know, mm -hmm. so and ingrained with it it was quite liberating mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay do y'all want the hard y'all want the hard test question at the end of the class no one has to answer it but i'm gonna give you the the hard the hard question of course okay, we do so, so paul today he does something very interesting he says as some of your own poets have said in him we live, move, and have our being. And so Paul is quoting the pagan prophets here, but that is, as far as Christianity is concerned, it's an orthodox thing. We, we say in God, we live, move, and have our being. But then he says, what you know is right, but it's incomplete. So let me go ahead and, and, and complete it for you and, and tell you about the one for whom and through whom we were made and, and this man who has risen from the dead and the day of judgment, et cetera, et cetera. So no one has to take a stab at this, but I'm just curious if you can, can you find a piece of secular wisdom, wisdom that does not come from anything you're going to read in the Bible or the book of common prayer, but a piece of secular wisdom that you say, you know, I actually, I, I agree with that. That is, that, that is, that is onto something that is true but then tell why it's not the complete truth. So, so to say, and, and you don't have to do part two if you don't want, but is there a piece, you know, Paul noticed that this culture that wasn't Christian that he said, I think this is true. Is there something that you can find that doesn't come from our scriptures or from our tradition that you also think is true? Um, and if you do think it's an incomplete truth, why? No justice, no peace. There you go. Where'd you hear that? Oh, I was raised on that phrase. <laughs> forever hanging out with, you know, so how Paul would handle this. If you're hanging out with some people who said that and you're preaching them the gospel, you can say, as it says, no justice, no peace. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you why this is true for me as a Christian. You know, mm -hmm. so that's, it almost would sound something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about all those students I've had, great worshipers of nature, but always because it was the intrinsic permanent value of nature, that's it. And I'm like, well, I'm with you guys. I love it too. But that's not why I have reverence for it. Mm -hmm. It's God's creation. We are part of this. I mean, uh, despite Lynn White's horrible statement in the 60s that Christians have ruined the environment, um, 
but I could never say that to a student. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sure. Um, but, again, I want to hear your story. Quick. I have to tell you a story about my son. When he was a high school student, and they were talking about environmental measures, etc. He wrote an opinion piece for the New for the Austin paper, which was printed. And in the opinion piece, he said, you talk about nature and preserving nature. We'll never do it unless we have a reverence for nature. Yeah. Yeah. And so where does the where does that it's not just that it's nice to be outside, it's that's a bug that's a part of the world and I don't want to step on it. Yeah. Yeah, Senator Martha, if you're, if you're ever, I, I love that, if you're ever, you know, if you're trying to put yourself in Paul's shoes, maybe you're not talking to the Athenians of the Areopagus, but you're, you know, you're speaking to some good, some good hippies who love to work, you know, who love the trees and who think that God is the tree. and Free huggers. With the, I've spent 25 years with those people. Go ahead. <laughs> and you love them. They're your people, right? And, and you can say, I love you. And this is where we can find some common ground, but this is where I'm different. And, you know, so you can put yourself, you kind of get what Paul's doing. Philip, you're exactly. there a place of secular wisdom that, that you can... Sorry. Is there you, a, it, was, it was a struggle for 25 years, personally. It was a struggle. Yeah. Uh, so now I feel free of that struggle. I feel I, I can just say what I want now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, what you have to say is really important because I think that unless we have some general sense of reverence for the world, we're going to destroy it. Mm -hmm. There's no question in my mind about that. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to hold us back. And it's part of being humble also, I think, to, to see that you're part of a, a, a much bigger a much bigger thing. Yeah. When you're part of the environment. I, I think what always troubled me the most is when I heard a student start inhaling this negativity of, well, the humans have, have ruined nature. Well, I'm a human. I heard so many students say, oh, the world would be so much better when the human species dies off. And I just felt so impassioned, so sorry for these people that they have no greater understanding and love for their piece of being part of that creation as God's creation. And yeah. They weren't, they weren't, well, they were, you know, 20 years old. They weren't ready to go down that road. They really right. wanted to hug that tree. <laughs> I when I was 20. I've, I, I, when I was 20, I knew it all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Philip, is there, before we sign off, is there any piece of secular wisdom that, that you think that you would like to affirm or that's been meaningful to you? And if so, where is it incomplete? You know, I really don't know that I have an answer, John. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, no, okay. It's, it's so not much of my mind has been colored by my faith. I'm not, I can't get back underneath it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. I think uh, my, my one answer to that question, and I'm sure that there, you know, this isn't explicitly stated in the scripture, but I, I've always loved, like, if you want to change the world, start with changing yourself. Like, you know, I, I, I kind of, I can drink that Kool-Aid. That's kind of like, you kind of always start with God's work in your own heart. And only from there do you, uh, 
do you reach out beyond yourself? I've always, always thought that was true. Well, team, this has been a, a good meeting and uh, Barbara and Julie, you know, we miss them. Hopefully they'll join us next week. And it was really good to see all of y'all. And I hope that you have a wonderful, wonderful week.